it seems that the intruder produced a 357 handgun, a very powerful handgun. It would appear to be a calculating execution. This is Life and Crimes. I'm Andrew Rule. This podcast is part of our new section, True Crime Australia. So if you've been waiting an extra day to hear it, apologies. But now we're on with the show. Earlier this year, I met Sal Perna, who is now Victoria's Racing Integrity Commissioner. But 35 years ago, Sal Perna was a young homicide detective, and he worked on a case that most of us have never heard of, but that Sal has never forgotten. And he took me aside at a social occasion, and he said to me, I'd love you to have a look at this. And I said, why is that, Sal? And he said, because I think that not only this person was murdered, but I'm sure that the person that organised it has got away with it. And I said, is that right? And he said, yep, I think you should look into it because justice was never done. We didn't have the time to chase down all the leads. There were a lot of other jobs on that week. We were understaffed. It was a, a very busy time. As he recalled, the motorcycle daredevil rider Dale Buggins uh, had just shot himself in a hotel in Parkville that week, the week that he was to appear at the Royal Melbourne Show. It was also the week that the Lindy Chamberlain inquest finding had been overturned by a Northern Territory Supreme Court judge, and there were many other big news stories around. So all in all, the short life and violent death of the woman that we will call Angie Bartkoviak went almost unnoticed. The victim in this case, she was the daughter of German migrants who'd come out to Melbourne just after World War II and built themselves a new life in a new country. They'd built a little house in Theodore Street, St Albans, in the mid-50s, where they and all their friends got together and put up the house as people used to do in those days. And in fact, sadly, that's the house where their daughter's life would end many years later. Angie Barkoviak was a bright and engaging young woman. She worked in the automotive industry initially at a place called ZF Automatics, where they rebuilt gearboxes in the western suburbs. And she got married to a German sea captain that she met when he visited Melbourne on his ship. Because she was a German speaker and her parents were, and because her father, Eric Senior, worked at the docks, he got friendly with this German sailor who was a, an officer brought him home to meet the family and Angie had married this chap who's a very nice man and in fact I've spoken with him. Recently he now lives in Hamburg. He and Angie lived fairly happily for a while but of course he was away on ships for weeks at a time, six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks at a time and as happens with some marriages between young people she got tired of this. By the spring of 1981 Angie was 34 years old she had a three-year-old son, a beautiful blonde little boy that she called Christopher. His name, in fact, was Aaron Christopher. And by this stage, Angie has broken up with her husband and she's gone to Queensland to live with her parents, with young Christopher. And Christopher formed a very strong bond with his grandparents who were called Tilly and Eric. And that was good because in late 1981, Angie returned to Melbourne for a couple of weeks. Angie came back because she'd been asked to appear as a witness in a trivial court case. It was just a, a traffic offence, and she had to give evidence. It was a civil case. But while she was in Melbourne, she took the opportunity to stay with her brother, Eric Jr., and his daughter, Camille, at the old family house in St Albans. And she stayed there for a couple of weeks because she had friends in Melbourne that she wanted to see, and she had some business to conduct. And the business was to wind up her affairs after her marriage. She was 
uh, keen to sell up certain property and to get her share of the money and move on. And so she was involved with lawyers and accountants and all the rest of it. And that's the background to what happened on the morning of Tuesday, September the 15th, 1981. What happened that morning at the house at 98 Theodore Street, St Albans, was that early in the morning at about 7.40, her brother Eric, who was, of course, named after his father, so Eric Jr., her brother Eric left for work. He worked in South Melbourne. And he took with him his daughter Camille, who was then 18, and they left quite early. And at the same time, or a little bit later, Camille's younger sister, Fiona, who was only 15, Fiona left for school, but Fiona didn't live there. She lived with her mother, who was separated from Eric, just around the corner in a flat. And Fiona went off to school that morning, which is relevant to what happened later in the day. And at about 8.30 that morning, a neighbour called Iris Johnson, who lived two doors down, heard a very loud bang. Now, Iris thought it was either a metal garage door that had been crashed down violently or perhaps even a small collision. She at no time thought it was a gunshot. It appears that what happened is that somebody was watching the house and that they saw Eric and Camille leave the house at 7.40 and then at around 8.30, the person watching the house has climbed in over the back fence where they've broken a bit of trellis, trampled on a bit of grass. They've walked over to the back door They've produced something like a screwdriver or a small tool, forced the back door, which was pretty easy, and then walked inside. And there, in what they called the television room, was the spot where Angie had been staying. And so she was sleeping on a divan set up in the television room. It would appear that she was lying on the divan in her nightdress with a dressing gown on, because that's where her body was found. It seems that the intruder produced a three fifty seven handgun, a very powerful handgun, and he fired three shots, it would appear. One of them hit Angie in the chest, the other one was straight through her head, and a third went through a wall. It would appear to be a calculating execution performed by someone with the sort of weapon that an underworld hitman would use. It did not appear to be a burglar or anything like that. Angie's body lay on the divan for the rest of the day. There was no one home except Eric's two poodle dogs, who, remarkably enough, went unhurt. Sometime after three o'clock that afternoon, young Fiona, the 15-year-old girl, comes home from school, and she lives nearby with her mother, and she knew that her aunt, her favourite aunt, Angie, was there. She thought, I'll go in and see Angie. So she comes up the path of her grandparents' old house, as it was, now her uncle's, and she knocks on the door. There's no answer. She hears the dogs barking. She thinks that's funny. I wonder what's happening. So she takes out her key that she has for the house because she used to live there and she opens the door and walks inside and she finds the dogs barking fairly animatedly and she walks out the back and she calls out, Angie, are you home? No answer. She steps into the TV room and sees the divan and on the divan she sees Angie lying there. For a split second she thinks she's asleep and then she realises she's not asleep. She realises something very bad has happened because she sees a pool of blood underneath her aunt's head and she can see a bullet hole. She rushes to the telephone, calls an ambulance. The ambulance comes, the police are called and by 4.45 that afternoon there are local police and there are four people from the homicide squad. Two of those people are Detective Sergeant Mick Friend and a young Detective Constable, Sal Perna, the man who, 37 years later, tells me about this crime that he can't forget. 
they look around and it becomes clear to the detectives and to the forensic people that they call in that A, it's a murder, B, it's a hit. She's been executed in cold blood. C, there is very little evidence left behind. There are marks on the back door where it's been forced. The trellis at the back has been broken. There's some grass that's been trampled. They pick up some cigarette butts outside the back door, but most probably they were left there by people who lived in the house and yourself used to smoke. They call in, of course, the forensic people and the fingerprint experts, and they fingerprint everything, and they find really nothing that shouldn't be there. Eventually, of course, the ballistics are done, and that's how they worked out that the weapon used was a three fifty seven handgun. But in the end, they've got no clues. Now, at this stage, we have to be very careful in telling our story, because the police formed a suspicion, as they usually do in these circumstances, that the first person they should look at would be people inside the family. So they look around the family and they question closely Angie's brother, Eric, Angie's nieces, Camille and Fiona. They question Eric's former wife, the girl's mother, and they work out in circles to talk to anybody that was associated with the family. Along the way, of course, they talk to Angie's former husband, but they soon work out that the seagoing German was nowhere near the scene. So then they look at any other partners she might have had and they trace her male friends or associates. She's 34. She's had a few boyfriends along the way, particularly since her divorce. And so they talk to these people and soon they form a suspicion about a man that we will call the suspect. We will call him the suspect only. And next morning, they go around to the business in Footscray where the suspect works. The suspect works in a small business that's fairly well known on a main road in Footscray. And they go in there and they said, excuse me, sir, we need to tell you something. We've got some information. Two detectives take the suspect into another room and they tell him the bad news. They are very keen to gauge his reaction. So they tell him the bad news that his former partner has been shot dead the previous day. He immediately crumples to the floor in shock. He's so stunned. He's so amazed. He's so heartbroken to hear this bad news. The police aren't altogether convinced by his act. They can't fault his answers. They can't shake his alibi. They said, where were you yesterday morning between you know 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock? He's able to provide them with a long list of corroborating witnesses. In fact, a witness list that eventually runs to eight people because of the nature of his small business. There were quite a few people who would call in and do business with him. So he's able to call up all different people who can corroborate that indeed he was there all morning. And of the eight, the first two are serving police, which is very good if you want to build an alibi. Our detectives are overworked. They don't have much time, but they are highly suspicious of the suspect. They are so suspicious that they actually reconstruct whether they can drive from the suspect's business in Footscray out to Theodore Street, St Albans, have enough time to break into the house and shoot somebody and then jump in the car and drive back. They do this at breakneck speed and they think it's barely feasible that anyone could do that. They are ultimately convinced that it probably didn't happen that way because of the sheer weight of witnesses to say that the suspect had not left the premises for any length of time. So they then formed the view that the suspect might know a lot more than he's letting on, but that he probably hadn't pulled the trigger, which left them with the big problem of knowing who did. And what they were left suspecting was this. 
They suspected that the suspect had conspired with others to get Angie Bartkoviak killed for reasons that they could guess at, but reasons that we won't speculate about here. It was a sad fact at that time in the 80s that the Homicide Squad was overworked, it was undermanned, and by and large, it ran on the basis that most murders were simple to solve because most murders were glorified domestics. And in that situation, often somebody would kill somebody close to them and then give themselves up or be waiting for the police when the police got there. And it was really just a matter of tidying up the details. What made life difficult for the Homicide Squad at that time was when they got a genuine mystery, when it was difficult to prove your suspicions about who killed somebody or how they'd obtained somebody's death. And that was the problem with this one. They had this suspicion that their suspect had connived with others to get this woman killed, but they had no way of substantiating their suspicions. I have to say that they regret that they had no more time to look into this case And they had no more time because there was a spate of violent deaths and and murders that week, that month, in fact. There were also a couple of murders in inner suburban pubs that were probably gangland-related. And there was the usual spate of domestic homicides. And so these overworked detectives were left holding the ball. They had other things to do and they didn't really have a feather to fly with. It didn't help, really, their cause that the only publicity that attended the death of Angie was a brief press conference or two held at Russell Street Police Headquarters where the head of the CIB, the Criminal Investigation Branch, of that time, a man called Chief Inspector Phil Bennett, made the fairly outlandish suggestion that the murder of Angie Barkoviak could, in fact, have been a burglary gone wrong. Why this senior officer would say such a thing is hard to say. You would wonder whether he was influenced in some way by what some of the local police had told him, whether they'd formed that conclusion erroneously and had told him such a thing. Uh, You would wonder just what got into his head, but it baffled the homicide police who had attended the case because they could tell as plain as day this was a highly organised hit. Try as they might, they couldn't prove it. The following year, 1982, they tracked down a bank manager, a bank manager from the Commonwealth Bank at St Albans. His name was Noel Johnson. He'd lately come down from Shepparton to run this bank branch. And one of his clients at the bank was this man we call the suspect. And he had some sort of professional relationship with the suspect because the suspect had a business and the business banked with him and the suspect part-owned property around the suburb. And the suspect had had a fairly heated discussion with him about ownership of a particular property, which he was disputing with his co-owner, who was a woman. And when the bank manager pointed out to him that you know this dispute would have to be resolved in some way, The suspect said something rather hostile. He said, she won't want to cause trouble. She won't come here and cause trouble or I'll get her. Words to that effect. Sufficiently hostile that the bank manager remembered the words and thought how ugly and how hostile and how sinister it sounded. So when the detectives came to talk to him, Noel Johnson told them about that conversation, which made the detectives all the more interested in the man they called the suspect. So they traced where he'd gone. The suspect had moved house a couple of times, interestingly. He'd moved to a flat in Coburg when the detectives turned up one night after work, knocked on the door, came in, introduced themselves again, 
they'd already met the previous year. And they said to the suspect, do you know the bank manager at St Albans Commonwealth Bank? He said, yes, he's my bank manager, Noel Johnson. And they said, well, what about this? He told us that you said you were going to get. And this took the suspect by surprise and made him very nervous. He didn't say much. He was a very cool, calm, collected character, the suspect. He kept denying. He kept saying not much at all. He even argued with the police. And he said to Detective Sergeant Michael Friend, he said, you're friend by name, but not by nature. You're no friend of mine. Mate. That's how he put it. Something that Michael Friend remembered all these years and told me a few weeks ago. The police left, and indeed, they had to put together a brief that went to the coroner the following year in 1983, and one of their duties was to type up a list of corroborating witnesses who corroborated that the suspect had indeed worked at his business on the morning of the murder, and it pointed out that the first two witnesses were serving police, both honest officers. There were no suspicions about those officers, but they knew the suspect because sometimes they had worked at his business part-time as casuals and he used to pay them in cash. So he knew them fairly well. The coronial inquest was held in 1983. The coroner heard what evidence there was, which wasn't a lot. He called the various police experts, the forensic people, the ballistics people, and he called the relatives to give an account of what had happened that day and the neighbour, Iris Johnson. And in the end, the coroner did what the coroner had to do, and that was to make a finding that Angie Barkoviak had been shot dead by a person or persons unknown. But beyond that, the coroner couldn't throw any light on it. The government announced a reward, as was normal then, of $50,000, but no one ever came forward, as usually happens. And basically, that was it. Case closed. Not officially closed, but in effect, it was closed. It was a cold case, and it filtered to the bottom of the too-hard basket. And really, that's the way it was. Until I ran into Sel Perna, the former homicide detective, earlier this year. You will have noticed that throughout this broadcast, we've had to beep things. That's because this is a live investigation. There are many legal angles and problems. We can tell you the truth, but not the whole truth. Yet... Thank you for listening. I'm Andrew Rule. You can read my stories in the Sunday Herald Sun or on heraldsun.com.au. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.